Uh, it was great that the kids all knew it was time to go. They all disappeared. So if your kids didn't go to uh, Kids Connect, they can go now. <laughs> all right. Good morning, Ocean View, Ocean View Online. It is good to be here this morning, and we're continuing our summer series this morning, The Seven Signs. Now, the Gospel writer, the Apostle John, he uses only seven of the miracles out of the many that Jesus performed, and he chooses these seven and sees them as specific signs. He says uh, at the end of his book, he says, These are written, these things are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Here was the purpose. Proofs that Jesus is the Messiah, the Anointed One, that he is the Son of God, God in human flesh, and that by believing in him we can have everlasting life. Now last week we looked at uh, the third sign took place at the pool of Bethesda. There were many people waiting for a miracle, but Jesus chose a man who had suffered with his disability for 38 years and asked him, do you want to get well? And it reminded us that we all have some sort of disability. And Jesus would ask us the same question, do you want to get well? We have a great God, a powerful Savior. Do you want to get well? Jesus can heal. What is God telling you to do? He told this man, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. The obedience precedes the miraculous. What is God telling you to do? What do you want to get well? Now, what we didn't mention last week in that story was that Jesus performed that miracle on the Sabbath, on the holy day, the Saturday, which was the Jewish holy day. And that created a whole lot of controversy. This wasn't just the only time, but John specifically picks this time, and then he uses a whole section of argument. You can, you can actually read it, John chapter 5. Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath, the holy day, a day of rest. In fact, he told the man to pick up his mat and go. Healing was considered work. So they're looking, Jesus, you were doing healing. You were doctoring on the Sabbath. And then they look at the man, and here he is carrying stuff and was seen working on the Sabbath. So chapter 5 continues with almost a whole court case with the religious legalists on the one side and Jesus on the other. And the Apostle John uses this sign miracle to bolster his argument. Jesus is more than just a man. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God in human flesh. And it is a dramatic statement that he makes in chapter 5. And he lines up five witnesses to prove it. Now, it seems that John wrote uh, the, this gospel later than the other gospels, probably closer to the end of the century, 80, 90 A.D., the early church was already beginning to struggle with, is Jesus God? And so John is writing his gospel to say, no, Jesus is God. And he uses chapter 5, heavy arguments in a Jewish court of law as Jesus is God. That's exactly why John chose these seven signs. He wanted to prove to the early church Jesus truly is the Messiah. He really is the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. Well, after the court case arguments, John moves on to another of the signs, the fourth sign. We find it in John chapter 6. When filet fish is not enough. 
The filet of fish sandwich. It is a fish sandwich or burger sold by McDonald's. A fried bread fish filet, or fried breaded fish filet, a steamed bun, tartar sauce, and pasteurized American cheese. It was created in 1962 by Lou Groen, who is a McDonald's franchise over in, owner in Cincinnati, Ohio. Now, Lou was a businessman, but he was a Catholic businessman, and his McDonald's was in a predominantly Roman Catholic neighborhood. Consequently, he hardly sold any hamburgers on Fridays due to the practice of abstaining from meat on Fridays. Now, that was a Western Christian custom that goes way back to the early centuries of the church. It was practiced by many Roman Catholics, Methodists, Anglicans, and Lutherans. Fish Friday. And the reason for it is Jesus died on the Friday. And so fasting on Fridays became a way to honor his sacrifice. But it didn't mean not eating anything. Instead, it meant abstaining from eating the flesh of warm-blooded animals. Jesus was a warm-blooded animal. Fish are cold-blooded. Therefore, it was okay to eat fish on Fridays. And uh, this was the first non-hamburger item brought in by the new McDonald's company owner, Ray Kroc. So Kroc made a deal with Groen. They would sell two non-meat sandwiches on a Friday in his district to do a test. Kroc had his own hula burger. Now the hula burger was grilled pineapple with cheese on a cold bun. Sounds good, eh? All right, hula burger. Uh, fish filet was the other one. So they did a Friday. They had both of them out there, and they wanted to see which one wins. Well, filet of fish won hands down, and it is still on the menu today. Now, Jesus was the first to feed a big crowd with filet of fish sandwiches. Maybe not Ray Crocs, but barley buns and a small fish for 10,000, please. This sign was described by all four of the gospel writers. But John is the only one who expands on the feeding of the 5,000. He carries it on to some more description. We begin to read in John chapter 6, verse 1. Some time after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. A great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. It's the spring of the second year of Jesus' ministry. His 12 student apprentices had just returned from a short-term missions trip. They were debriefing, telling all about the exciting things that they had witnessed. They were excited and tired. Jesus had also just heard the news that his cousin John, John the baptizer, had been executed by King Herod after a lengthy prison term. So Jesus led his students, his 12 disciples, on a retreat. Let's get away from the crowds. Let's get into the boats. We're going to go across the other side of the lake. Get away. Let's get some rest after a tiring season. The trouble was, <laughs> the crowds followed. 
Big crowds in boats walking around the lake. Ministry did not stop. In fact, Luke tells us that Jesus welcomed them. He had compassion on the crowds and he welcomed them and he began to sit down and teach. And he taught about the kingdom of God and he healed those who needed a miracle. It went on all day. There's no rest for Jesus. You know, ministry can be tiring. Sometimes you're just talking. Sometimes you're just connecting with people. But if you've ever had that opportunity to talk to somebody about Jesus, to actually interact or, or even uh, have a discussion with, with like-minded people, you'd find, whew, I am tired. Ministry can be tiring. And no, no more, no less for Jesus and his disciples. They were tired. But there was a crowd, 5,000 of them. Matthew even says that was just the men. So it might have been more like 10,000 or 15,000 people are on this mountainside, if you counted the women and children as well. The day wore on. Disciples are realizing it's getting late. And so they're kind of going, hey, let's finish up here, let everyone travel to the local villages and try to get something to eat. But Jesus had something different in mind. He asked one of his disciples who actually lived near this area. Philip lived in this area where they were across the, this lake. He asked Philip a question. Where will we buy some bread to feed all these people? Philip, you know the area. Where would we buy it? Now the text says Jesus was testing him because he already knew what he was going to do. Verse 7 says, Philip answered him, It would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Literally, the Greek says it would take 200 denarii. Like a denarii was a, a Greek, uh, Roman coin, and it was equal to one day's wages for a laborer. So six months' wages, you translate that all into our currency today, you're talking $30,000. And Philip was just saying, hey, it'll take $30,000 to feed all these people, and they're only going to get a bite. Now, it's John who tells us that it was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, who gives the first suggestion of a solution. In John 6, it say, uh, verse 8, it says, Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how will they go among so many? How far will they go among so many? There's a boy here who's smart enough to have brought a lunch. Now, maybe his mother was a good Jewish mother, and she's always looking out for him. Tommy, don't forget your lunch. Ah, Mom, nobody else taking the lunch. Do you take your lunch? He took his lunch. Now, it was barley. Barley's cheaper than wheat. So it, this was a poor family, a poor bun. It was not a bun or a loaf like we think. It would be more like a pita bread. And small fish were prob probably the pickled sardines that uh, actually were fished out of Lake Galilee. They weren't pickled when you fished them, but you pickled them after you got them out anyway. So, yeah, Mom, Mom made sure he had, it. he had a lunch. And essentially, it was poor man's food. Not a wealthy man's lunch, but almost a couple of filet of fish sandwiches. Jesus takes what they had, and he does something amazing. He instructs everyone to sit down. Matthew says they sat in groups of 50s and 100s on the grassy hill. That's probably a smart thing. It would stop a mob scene if they knew that, hey, there's food down there. <laughs> no, everybody sit down and we'll come to you. Jesus then took the loaves and the fish. He gave thanks for the bread and thanks for the fish and broke them 
and distributed to the disciples who distributed it to the people. And it says everyone had enough to eat. Amazing. But that's not all. Verse 13 says, So they gathered them and filled all the scraps and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. There was stuff left over. Twelve baskets. I was thinking, where do they get baskets from? And then I realized they had their fish boats there. And these are the, the baskets they would have used to put the fish in to take it to the market when they had caught it. And there were twelve baskets, probably a good-sized basket left. Not only was everyone filled, but they picked up this massive amount of leftovers, which reminds us that Jesus is more than enough. The next time the enemy tries to get into your head, tries to convince you that you are not good enough, that you are not worthy, keep this in mind. God deals in leftovers like you and me. And our Savior is more than enough. Now, the temptation in interpreting this sign is to say, hey, the Lord is my provider, Jehovah Jireh. And yeah, we can go there a little bit, but that's not what John is talking about. The Lord will provide. Providing. You know, we stock up, when you use the word provisions, we stock up on provisions for a road trip. Or sometimes we can get an upgrade in life. Have you ever had that? The Lord provides us with a new car. Or the Lord provided the church with a new sound system that we got for a really good price or someone gave it to them. God provided. Even sometimes, maybe many of you have the issue of there was a check in the mail and it paid the rent. The Lord provides. Now, we recognize these as God's provision, but we rarely depend upon a provision. In Genesis 22, verse 14, God provides a ram in the thicket in place of the sacrifice of his son Isaac. And Abraham declares that God is Jehovah Jireh or Yahweh Hira. So Abraham called the place, and this is the translation, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. And then it goes on to say, on this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The Lord will provide. Now it's not said in the context of snacks or cars or money or bills. It is in the context of the most profound physical need a person can face. The loss of life. The loss of Isaac, his son. You know, at our worst, we think God, of God's provision as if he's a waiter. And we signal him to our life and place our orders in faith and receive what we've requested. And you know, that's kind of at the worst of our life. More often, though we're not so trite, we do think of God providing for us jobs, family, friends, care, he provides a church, uh, he provides abilities, answered prayer. Now these are significant and meaningful, and they absolutely are a portion of God's provision to us. In Matthew 6:25, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shows one end of the spectrum of God's provision. He cares for the smallest in his creation, the birds, the grass, the flowers. We are image bearers of God uniquely made to be God's children, and he provides as a 
father ought to. He provides exactly those things that are best for his children, without hesitation and always at the right time. John, however, as he's telling us this story, he has his focus on the mission of Jesus. God gave his only son so that we might have life abundant and eternal. It was more than kindness. It was a rescue, a ransom, a debt paid, a punishment born as a substitute for the guilty. Jesus was the last and final sacrifice. That ram in the thicket in Abraham's day in Genesis was a prophecy, a picture of Jesus in the New Testament, in the Gospel. Jesus is God's perfect and complete provision. The answer to every person's deepest question, the fulfillment of their deepest needs, God's only Son was sacrificed as the miraculous provision for all people the Lord will provide. All, of the, all four of the Gospel writers recount this sign of the feeding of the 5,000. But John is the only one who tells us more of the story. It's not just that Jesus is Lord of the natural laws. He can heal diseases. He can help people with disabilities and blindness. He can change water into wine. He can multiply loaves and fish to feed thousands. But this sign is about more than this. The crowd had seen with their own eyes what had just happened, and they began to connect the dots. There's more to Jesus. Verse 14, and the people saw the sign Jesus performed. And they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. The prophet here is the prophet. The crowd accurately understood that Jesus is the prophet referenced by Moses in Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God, this is Moses speaking, and he's telling the people, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. By the time of Jesus, there was talk every day, all around about Messiah, the prophet. The prophet that Moses spoke about is coming. The Messiah is coming as they read Daniel, as they read the Old Testament, as they read the prophets. They said, it must be coming. And so everyone knew about the prophet. Everyone knew about Messiah. And there was a common understanding that Messiah would be a new king a political freedom fighter, a benevolent provider, and they wanted Jesus to be king. The filet of fish is not enough, Jesus. We want more. The crowds were rushing around trying to find Jesus, attempting to get close, and they had, there was a bunch of different reasons. You know, some were just thrill seekers. They were just looking to see what would happen next. They were fascinated with the signs and the miracles. 
even after the events at the mountainside with the fish and the bread, it says a bunch of boats from Tiberias landed near the picnic site. I mean, the whole thing's all done and gone with, but a bunch of people had all heard something was going on. They got in the boats, they went across, and they were disappointed. The show's over. So they got back in their boats and they raced back to the other side, get over to Capernaum, see if they could join in the excitement. When they found Jesus, it says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now that's a story for next week because that's a next sign. So we'll, we'll ignore that, but Jesus did something weird again. The filet of fish miracle is not enough. We want to see more show-stopping entertainment. And then there are many others who saw in Jesus the fulfillment of the Moses prophecy. The, we want to make him king. It was a political motive. They would force him to be king. One like Moses will come to lead us. Daniel spoke of Messiah. Jesus is the one. He has power. He can heal. He can make food appear when we need it. He could defeat the Romans. He can make Israel great again. The filet of fish, Jesus, is not enough. We want you to be king. Find him. Anoint him. Put him in charge of this political nightmare that we're in. Now, not only were there thrill seekers and king seekers, there were bread seekers. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Filet of fish is not enough. Give us more bread. Show us another sign. Moses, hey, this reminds me of Moses. Moses gave the people of Israel manna in the wilderness day after day for 40 years. Are you going to do that, Jesus? Filet of fish isn't enough. Are you going to be our Moses? And Jesus responded that it isn't going to be Moses who gives them bread from heaven. It was my Father who gives the true bread from heaven. Bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Yeah, 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 give us that bread. We want that bread. It's just like the Samaritan woman in chapter 4, a couple of chapters ahead, before this. Jesus asked her for water from the well, and he started telling her about his living water, where you will never thirst again. And she says, oh, give me that water, please. Oh, give us that bread, said the people. I will give you living water. I am the bread of life. You will never be hungry. You will never be thirsty. And we read these words, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the bread of life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Now you're kind of thinking, wow, in the context of providing bread for the people, you're going, that'd be pretty cool. You know, a little bit like Elijah and the woman at Zarephath. You know, every day they went to the, went to the, the uh, oil and the meal, and there was some there, and they lived all through a famine on biscuits and gravy. But still, filet of fish is not enough. And Jesus says, the filet of fish is not enough. You need more. You need me, said Jesus. This is the first of the I am statements in John. Just like he included seven signs, John made seven important I am statements metaphors for Jesus. 
Jesus said in chapter 6, I am the bread of life. And then he says, I am the light of the world in 8. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. And then 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And finally in verse 15, chapter 15, I am the true vine. Seven times. Way back in Moses' day, when Moses was challenged by God at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, Moses asked God, what is your name? You see, from Abraham to Moses was 400 years, and nothing was written down. It was all by word of mouth. They did not have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They didn't have that. Moses wrote that. So the people didn't have any of that, and the whole nation of Israel was getting bigger and bigger and bigger from the children of Jacob to this, this massive two, two million people. And Moses, God's speaking to Moses, and Moses says, well, well, who do I say? How do I say your name? What, who are you? How do I tell the people that you are our God? And God said to Moses, I am who I am which is actually ayeh, asher, ayeh. It is the verb to be. I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God is the I am. I am the one who exists in the eternal now. So it is John now demonstrating that the I am in Exodus was now physically standing in front of the people. I am ready to be your shepherd. I am their door to the Father, their life, their vine, their light, their bread of life and their truth. Here's the I am, the God of the now, ready to be whatever they needed him to be in their lives. In chapter 8, which is a, a few chapters down the way, John records a very dramatic incident that is immensely important for you to prove the deity of Jesus Christ. You may have people come to your door that say Jesus was not God. You point them to this passage. John 8, verses 58-59. There's a discussion going on about Abraham and being children of Abraham and all this. And then Jesus said these words. Very truly I tell you, or amen, amen, or verily, verily, whichever translation you use. He's making a big point, he says. Before Abraham was born, I am. Even in Greek, that is a complicated way of saying something. And it says, at this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself and slipped away from the temple grounds. The people knew exactly what Jesus was saying. He was saying, I am the I am of Exodus 3. I am God. And they knew right away what he was saying. He was claiming to be God. And that's considered blasphemy. And they needed to kill him and execute him. And it would be blasphemy if it wasn't true. But it was true. It's what he claimed. C.S. Lewis said it so well, and we've quoted him many, many times with this particular saying, Jesus claiming to be God. 
A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. Jesus affirmed numerous Old Testament prophecies about himself through these I am statements. He knew who he was, and he wanted us to be clearly know it as well. Jesus can't be minimized to be merely our ticket to heaven. Instead, he must be seen as our daily sustenance, our direction, our protector, our sacrificial savior, our victory over death, our access to the Father and eternal life, our vitality and strength. Jesus is not just a great teacher. He is not just a miracle worker. He is not just your savior. He is instead the great I am in the flesh who became your sustenance, your light, your hope, your salvation, and your strength. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He didn't want to keep filling their stomachs. He wanted them to see that physical food only satisfied hunger temporarily. But he was the one who could satisfy them spiritually into eternity. He was saying that he is the bread that provides life. Manna satisfied the physical needs of the Israelites in the wilderness, but only for a while. Messiah satisfies our spiritual needs forever. Those who believe in Jesus have life. The manna in the wilderness satisfied temporary hunger. And those who ate of it eventually died. Jesus provides the bread of life that leads to life everlasting. And multiple stories illustrate the reality of an empty and unfulfilled life. Not just among poor people that feel their life is empty, but there are some of the most profound stories come from the rich and the famous. People who have everything. People whose stomachs are full Fame, fortune, winning Super Bowls may provide a temporary fix, but sooner or later you'll be hungry again. Blaise Pascal, who was a very famous French philosopher, mathematician, physicist, and it was Blaise Pascal who was also a believer in Jesus Christ, and he made this important quote, and it's been quoted numerous times by many people, he said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God, the Creator, made known through Jesus. This is a concept that Billy Graham used in his messages often, that God-shaped whole can only be filled by Jesus. And until we're in a relationship with God, we will have this vacuum in our life. Most of us sense this and try to fill it with all kinds of things, even good works, social justice. However, it's like trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. Jesus has told them that what they need is the true bread, not just the physical bread. The true living bread will satisfy their most important need, not just the biology of life, but 
eternal life. What must we do, people asked. It says in verse 28, they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? What works do we need to do to get this bread? Most likely they're thinking, oh man, here, okay, here's a new rule to the Talmud, uh, a new ceremony, perhaps uh, a particular offering that we've got to do to get in God's good books. And Jesus' answer was this. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Believe in the one God has sent. It's believe in Jesus. As his apprentice Peter realized at the end of this chapter, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. You are the great I Am. Tom Landry was a famous head coach of the Dallas Cowboys from 1960 to 1988. They won their first Super Bowl in 1971. Now, it's the pinnacle of success in the National Football League to win the Super Bowl. <laughs> you're, you're excited. You got it. But Landry says it wasn't long before this is what he felt and heard in the locker room. The overwhelming emotion in a short period of time among the players was how empty that goal seemed to be. The thought was, there must be something more. Landry's parents taught him to attend church, but as he climbed through the football ranks, he experienced a restlessness and emptiness, first as a player, then as a defensive coach with the New York Giants. But even as he neared the top of his profession, Landry wondered why his happiness at his achievements didn't seem to last, and he actually considered leaving football. Tom shared that restlessness with a Christian friend who invited him to a Bible study in Dallas. Landry said he knew the Christmas and Easter stories and didn't think he needed to study the Bible. His friend, however, persisted, and Landry found that he was challenged by Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. God opened to him the gospel. Later, Landry stated, I've often said that if they would have told me you're saved by grace, it would have saved me a whole lot of time. It took me a while to get through all the facts to really understand the Bible and what the gospel of Jesus Christ was about. Believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It was 1959. Landry was 35 years old at the time. He'd attended church all of his life and yet never entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ. I thought that when you went down to join the church, that made you a Christian, he said. Football had been his number one priority. Now, he said, God is number one. When filet of fish is not enough, you need Jesus. He is the bread of life. Let's bow together in prayer. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we come to you today.